just one thing I want you to do for me first. Waste not, want not. You're listening to the Coffee Clatch Crew Podcast with your hosts, Jason and Christina. Consider it your digital water cooler. I do hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Stand, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take our stand with episode eight, The Stand. <laughs> Written by Ben Cavill and Taylor Elmore. Directed once again by Vincenzo Natale. IMDb is at a seven and Rotten Tomatoes stays at a 59%. The critics say an explosive penultimate episode of the series, which features the death of several major characters. While many of the details of the events are changed, the overall themes remain the same, culminating in a showdown of good versus evil. Uh, Jason, a couple things I want to say right at the top. I think it's amazing. This episode is very close to your previous analogy of the Lotus Casino in Percy Jackson. I want to talk about that more when we get there. But while watching it, I kept thinking it's as though they're all brainwashed and slightly glamoured, not just Nadine, living in a sort of dull haze. So Flag is keeping them entertained, subservient, and non-questioning. But as soon as someone raises their point clearly, you know, truthfully and with enough conviction, they stop fearing as much and it's enough to break the spell. So that really came home for me and I was kind of wishing this is how they started out Vegas in the first episode. Mm. I think I would have understood it a lot more and it would have felt better to me. It's the same thing as last episode. I think these two are really strong and I can tell there's a different stamp on them probably as a result of Natalie. But as I feared, all of the problems from previous are just sort of culminating here. With the end of a lot of character arcs, I think it really ramps up and the issues are a lot more evident. But the plot lines and the intensity of what's actually happening here, I think was interesting and in a lot of ways really visually appealing. Well, not appealing, I suppose. Very well said. I think that sums it up perfectly. Podcast over. That's it? That's perfect. We're done? Basically, the rest of the podcast, <laughs> we're going to be saying the same thing, but in more words. You are correct, Chris. Natalie did it again. He made it look awesome in many aspects. There's parts of this episode that I truly did enjoy. There's changes, at least from the 94 version, that I like better, mm. and we'll get into that. But yet again, it's lacking in the characters. So that falls flat. Or should I say, the lack of character build is drowned in this episode. You sure it doesn't explode? Uh, both. It's, it's drowned in the It's, it's not explodes. electrifying. <laughs> but there's also the issue we have with many shows is rushed. Mm. So we have the character problem. Let's put that aside. We also have individual storylines that are rushed or even forgotten. Stu, we've talked about it. Stu, if you didn't read the books or watch the 94 version, does Stu really mean anything to you? What? What is going on in this episode? I mean, let me put it this way. Even if you're not as connected to him and I wouldn't blame you, I, I think there is still a fondness for him because James Marsden is doing such an excellent job at acting, but he's given so little to work with. Mm -hmm. But okay, you're not as attached to his storyline because it is very climactic what's happening in Vegas versus this slow kind of injury and illness decline that he's going through. There was some interesting stuff in the book with Kojak that we could have put in there. I'm not kidding. It actually was really cool. I think the bigger sin is Larry. And I've been trying to talk about him from the very beginning because mm. I knew this is really King's main character. 
he focuses a lot on the two sides of the equation. Harold, which this show, in hindsight, maybe went too far with. Owen Teague was amazing, and they certainly had his storyline well figured out. But it robbed us of some time with other people. And in King's book, Larry was the opposite side of that equation. Someone who was given, someone who was offered the same deal Mm -hmm. by flag, but chose to do the hard work to introspect and try to figure out how he could improve himself, to keep pushing back against his instincts to run from this leadership position, to be better, to try to be a nice guy, quote unquote. And I think his development was just as important as Harold, so that when you get to this point where he's made a turnaround and is taking his stand, it is very weighty. It's, it's not necessarily the actor here, although I have said I liked the way Adam Stork did this in the 94 version. I think he brought a little bit of gravitas to it in the final moments, whereas this is very underplayed. It just didn't have enough time. You don't understand the things he's saying to Nadine. Why are they important? His relationship with Ray. Who is Ray? Her <laughs> character is all over the map, yeah. and we've gotten nothing from her. And then I feel like they did a sort of, we want to make you think this was the Lloyd character we were building all along. But I don't know. I don't know that I really saw that. I appreciated some stuff here, but I don't think they laid the track for it. In addition, I think Tom, having mm. him show up. Okay, so Natalie made that scene very impactful. Mm-hmm. But where has he been? What journey has he been going through walking back? We saw nothing. It's wasted story. I was so intrigued when we saw him hop into that truck. And just barely escape Flag's notice. And I thought we would get clips of him dispersed throughout, really fearing for Flag finding out where he was or being able to make it out of there. And they just sort of forgot about him until the last couple of seconds here where Kojak finds him. And so it does feel more like a deus ex machina. You know, along comes Tom to save Stu, where really it was just their two journeys meeting at the right place at the right time. Mm Mm-hmm. It's missing that element. You said this, you talked about this uh, last week, the spiritual element. element. Mm. Is it the right place, right time, because it was all part of the plan? Mm -hmm. Or because of Stu's election of free will? Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of questions there, and they've so shied away from all of that, yet that's the culmination here in this episode. They're hitting it head on, talking about the apocalypse, talking about I will fear no evil. It's a bit weird, because we didn't have enough Mother Abigail flag stuff to substantiate that. So yet again, Flag's message feels confused at times, as does his character and the way he goes out to me. (laughs) I really appreciated more of what was going on in the Inferno center of the hotel with almost everyone else than with Flag. And that's kind of unfortunate that it makes me miss Jamie Sheridan, because I do really like Alexander Skarsgård. We're going to talk about all of that, We'll start out with what's happening in Vegas, and then we'll end up with what's going on with Stu. We open up in a makeshift prison holding pen, where Glenn, Larry, and Ray are being held, awaiting their trial, quote-unquote. Glenn muses that the people of Vegas aren't really that different from the Boulder Free Zone citizens. Bunch of lost, scared people. Following somebody who makes them feel just a little less lost. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Meaning what? They're no different than us. I take it you don't agree. They're fucking evil, Glenn. Just as long as we're not being overly simplistic. You do realize that they lined the strip with crucified bodies, right? Realize it. I welcome it. Means this dark man can't count on his own people. 
making public displays out of all of those who defy him. That's not strength. It's weakness. So yet again, he's saying something that we saw in the 94 that we heard about in the books, that these people weren't really evil. They were doing their best to live life and they wanted a little order and structure. But we haven't seen that. No, it's that gray zone that we were talking about. That's what they should have leaned on. It's not humans are either good or bad. And when they're bad, they're so bad, they're just party animals. They look like MTV Spring Break, 1990s. Yeah. Um, But Glenn does start to shine. This is the introspective Glenn that we've seen moments of and why Mother Abigail felt he was important to be part of the five. I love this scene. I love the perspective that he brings to it. Right at the top of the episode, he starts to put pinholes in the Vegas facade. Yeah, and that ramps up in our kangaroo court where we go next. The rat woman acts as judge while Lloyd plays prosecutor to a show trial. Lloyd accuses the zoners of coming under the stealth of darkness, like the previous spies. This is a bit from the book. It's Flag saying it, but when he is talking about what they're being accused of leading up to their execution, good people don't try to sneak into the community and under the cover of darkness, they announce themselves. And Larry's going, we came in the middle of the highway midday. He's lying. Everything he says are lies. Of course, this is all for fun. It's meant to be entertainment. And we see more in this episode than ever before that it's, structured that way the rat woman is the entertainment director everything's up on tvs everything's orchestrated keep the people happy feed them the story you want again not something that we got enough of before we're starting to get an understanding just now but we're starting (laughs) to get an understanding of how flag is maintaining this control is keeping everyone happy one and we'll get to later the stones actually may be doing something yeah more than just looking what what Could we have seen these things sooner? They're good ideas, but where were they? So we'll get back to that. But here we're starting to see that he's keeping everyone occupied. He's entertaining them. This is People's Court on TV. Yeah, I was just going to say it makes it feel like reality TV almost. So it's at a remove for them. The people in the audience can cheer for this stuff because it doesn't quite feel real. And I think when Glenn starts saying things that bring it home for them, it is Mm -hmm. almost like breaking that spell that I spoke about before. Breaking the fourth wall. I think that's why he chose Lloyd here. And we, we need to know a little bit of that. It makes more sense of why he's kind of an idiot this time around. But also that he's been questioning this not just blithely going along with it. We heard that he's afraid of Flag's name, but it almost seems like a weird personality quirk last time Mm -hmm. instead of he's really maybe against what Flag is asking him to do. And also, while I liked Ratwoman here in this scene playing the judge, it got confusing to me. The more we went on, Ratwoman is in every role. Yeah, She's the judge. She's the entertainment director. She's the midwife to deliver Nadine's baby. Flags, baby. Was that her? I mean, she looks so different. It was her. She's also the head of cleaning. Yeah. Remember, she was the one that we need. We need everyone up here for cleanup aisle three. And we've seen her before, but they definitely made more of an emphasis on the character of Julie. And Julie doesn't have much to do now. So what was the point? Why didn't we just have Julie, who clearly is the person capable of putting on the show? She's all about flag. She should have been the one in that role. Who's who's Julie? (laughs) Good point. Lloyd's. Oh, God. Sorry. 
previous episodes you were building up, well, maybe they didn't give as much to Dana because they're building up Julie more. Right. And now she falls off here, and it's all about Ratwoman, who we didn't really know. What's the point of having two? Just make that Julie's arc. I'd like to point out, I've been saying Julie Laurie. So if you said the full name, I would have known. Okay, don't, sorry. Don't, don't kill me. Sorry. Um, she's fun, though. Ratwoman, um, I don't mind it. If you're going to truncate that, that's fine. I love her eye makeup, scales of justice. Again, it's like uh, makeup for the TV show. At first, when we started to see this scene, I was like, oh, no. A trial. This isn't part of the books. This isn't part of the '94. This is different, and this might be bad. But as it unfolded, I actually enjoyed these scenes, and that's mainly because of Glenn. I loved the knife that he just sliced through like a birthday cake, the facade. Yeah, and that was definitely his role last time too. I mean, he totally puts Lloyd off balance. <laughs> Lloyd is coming in. You know, our savior in his mercy has decided these three shitbirds have a chance at a different fate. (laughs) Renounce the witch in her lies and swear loyalty to the one true motherfucking king. But Glenn says, oh, yeah, mother of dragons. That's perfect. (laughs) Queen of the Andals. If he can fly, why does he need all this? Why not face us himself? So not only taking down that putting flag up on a pedestal thing, but is he afraid? Is he afraid to come talk to us? Why is Lloyd his mouthpiece? Things start to turn now. Lloyd doesn't like the way this is going. He threatens to shoot Glenn, but is clearly reluctant to do it. By the way, we find out later in this version, Lloyd has never actually killed someone. So he wasn't the main perpetrator of the crimes that he got sent to prison for. It was more of Poke. And he kept saying, I would have only gotten into small shit if it wasn't for Poke. But he was a criminal. He had committed some crimes. I don't think he has meant had as many moral qualms about it as Lloyd does here. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, it harkens back to when we first met Lloyd in the 7-Eleven or gas station, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. He's okay with doing the crime, but he doesn't want to hurt people. Small shit, like he says over and over again, yeah. So coming down to this scene, it felt real. This isn't something that he wants to do. He likes to play the game, be the head, wear his Michael Jackson outfit, and be loved and adored by people. But he doesn't really want to hurt anybody. Yeah, and here comes the problem because Ratwoman is whispering in him to stop embarrassing them. What she's saying is he's taking control of the conversation. This is meant to be a show for the people where we Mm -hmm. can ridicule them and put them down and still fear. Instead, they're making them wonder. Don't let them do that. But Lloyd takes it as you got to grow a pair and act. If you're going to shoot, if you're going to say you're going to shoot him, shoot him. (laughs) So foolishly. He raises the gun. Glenn says, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Come back to that in a minute. They can all stop this because without their fear, flag is nothing. That's the last straw. Lloyd shoots him. In his final words, Glenn says, it's all right. You don't know any better. And Lloyd empties the clip into him, stunning the crowd into silence. While up in his suite, flag descends to the ground, no longer able to levitate. A few key things here. This is a pretty popular saying. Cassius is speaking to his friend Brutus about how Julius Caesar must be stopped from becoming monarch of Rome. Brutus is torn between his love for his friend and his duty to the public, much as Lloyd is torn here. He does have this allegiance to Flag, this sense that Flag saved him from certain death and put him in a position of power and authority. He also has a job to show the people that he's in control here, but he has this internal moral sense telling him, but I don't think this is right. Also, Cassius reminds Brutus that Caesar is just a man, not a god. They were all born equally free, so why should they bow to another man? 
And that's part of what Glenn is saying here. Is that all Flag really has over you people is fear? You know, all you have to do is stand up to him and not be afraid anymore, and you take his power away. But there is this image, much like there was with Caesar, that they're larger than life, that they have control over everything. You have no choice but to go along with it. So I understand that. What feels odd to me here is how quickly the crowd turns shocked at the death of Glenn, because I thought about this. There's been crucifixions all around Vegas. There's been people beating others up in the streets and taking slaves. There's brutal death matches happening inside of the inferno, but suddenly we are appalled because Lloyd shot Glenn? I get that it's probably more about Lloyd's indecision, them seeing him lose control and people questioning flag. Mm. But again, it was just a little confused to me. It was like they were reacting to his actions, and I thought, well, that doesn't feel appropriate. Oh, I see. I didn't think of it that way. Maybe the death matches, because it was, it felt like it was on a stage away from them. They're not face to face with it. It, yeah. it still looks like a, a TV show. Again, that unreality. Mm-hmm. In the courtroom, they're right there. They're hearing the gun, uh, the brutality of shooting many times. The fact that he didn't really need to do it. Glenn was down and under control. When Glenn first got shot, I said to myself, oh, he can live through this. It's just in his shoulder, and he was shot so close that it could go through. All right, Glenn can still be alive. But then Lloyd shot him a few more times. But maybe it's the fact that Glenn's words, like I said, it cut through the facade for a second and made people start thinking, why are we following Flag like this, loving him so much? Is it just because we're scared not to? Yeah, and it takes someone having the courage to step up and say those things because I think Glenn knew the moment he did, he was going to be in trouble. I don't know if he expected to be killed. And I really like it being more of a public spectacle here in the books. They're just kept in prison cells and separately. They're not all three of them, Glenn, Larry, and Ray together. And Glenn won't stop going on and on. So Flag comes to see him personally. He's offering him kind of the same deal. It seems at first that he did to Dana, I'll let you go, seeming like a nice guy. And Glenn's kind of like, mm, will you? And he says, of course, I couldn't go without my friends, though. Flag says, of course not. And all you have to do is ask. Get down on your knees and ask me. Glenn laughs heartily. He threw back his head and laughed long and hard. And as he laughed, the pain in his joints began to abate. He felt better, stronger, in control again. Oh, you're a card. I'll tell you what you do. Why don't you find a nice big sand pile, get yourself a hammer, and pound all that sand right up your ass. (laughs) Just showing him that he's not afraid of him, despite the fact that at this point, Flag has been making his arthritis worse so that he can't move his fingers. Mm. He's in a lot of pain. But he's not going to back down. So he keeps laughing and Flag is getting more and more angry. Stop laughing. Why are you laughing at me? Shut up. And weaker, it seems. And so then Glenn says, oh, pardon me. You're nothing. It's just we were all so frightened. We made such a business of you. I'm laughing as much at our own foolishness as at your regrettable lack of substance. (laughs) And he's trying to get Lloyd to shoot him, telling Lloyd, get rid of this guy. Get rid of this guy. And Lloyd can't do it. Glenn finally says, oh, kill me yourself if you're going to kill me. Surely you're capable. Touch me with your finger and stop my heart. Make the sign of the inverted cross and give me a massive brain embolism. Bring down the lightning to cleave me. Oh. The fact is, to Glenn, Flag is an ordinary man who he and everyone in Boulder had made out to be this big imposing figure. And he's stripping away that power from him, saying we willingly gave it to him through our fear. 
But if we can look at him just as a man, we take away his control. And I think you have the same exact result here, but turning the tide of people sooner, which is very interesting, getting the citizens of Vegas to Mm. realize it. And we do see this in the show, like you said, where Flag can no longer fly for a moment. His power is truly dependent on his followers, and it seems the fear of his followers. That's something they didn't show throughout the whole series until now. And he says at one point the adulation, and I wondered at this, because that's a cool concept. You had talked about why not make him a little more human, that he needs to feel like people like him, they worship him. That's why he keeps telling them, get down on your knees, worship me. And they show, when he's making that speech later, his little smiley button, that we never realized the purpose of it. It was just sort of a cute, quirky thing, a Jamie Sheridan-ism. In that scene, though, later, before the crowd starts to ramp up, they zoom in on the button and it has what looks like one red dot underneath it. Almost looks like a power meter, like on a, an accessory like your cell phone. Yeah, you saw it that way. I thought more of a blood spot. It looked like it lit up underneath the smile okay. as though it was a, a phone at 10%. And I thought, oh, this is going to be cool. As the crowd starts cheering him more and his speech is swaying them, we're going to see that light meter go up and his power increase. Maybe when it gets to full capacity, that's when we'll see him levitate. Mm. And we'll really get how he is controlled by whether or not he has their love, affection, worship. But they never went back to it if it was even a thing at all. I feel like they were hinting at it and hinting at many things that they really could have actually made very cool about Vegas and Flag. We'll come to something else with Lloyd in a moment. Uh, But again, we just kind of, we rushed it. We got to it too late. Speaking of, let's talk of the next scene where afterward, Ray and Larry are kept handcuffed in a kitchen. Ray is scared, wishing she knew what all this was for. Is it just to make a show of their deaths? When Nadine comes down to talk to Larry privately. What the hell happened? He called and I came. And now I'm carrying his prints. You, you, you fucking hear yourself? Did any of the others make it? Yes. He somehow managed to not kill everybody with that bomb. Harold. It was Harold, wasn't it? What the fuck? How do you mean? The visual. He kept the kids away. me away. I didn't want you to get hurt. But you wanted to hurt them. So you could come here and become this. Is this who I always was? Larry, don't you see? It took me coming here to really, truly understand. Nadine, just fucking, just look at yourself. Fucking look! So he forces her to look at her own reflection. She finally sees and is confused, saying, I don't understand. But then she goes into labor and is whisked up to Flag's suite, where Ratwoman prepares to deliver as Flag watches and smokes a cigar. Okay, first of all, he's drinking milk. I can't believe, is this the first time you've noticed? Yeah. He's been doing it throughout the series. They show him with this glass with ice in it, but it's just got milk. Yeah, it's the first time I noticed. Uh, I guess he doesn't drink alcohol, he drinks... uh... I wonder if that's a callback to there was no alcohol, no drugs in Vegas, but also they often talked about him to condense this. King's story was also a celebration of America. 
the good things about the country, what we were trying to rebuild after its downfall. And even Flag himself had taken on aspects of that. Nadine thinks to herself when she finally meets him, he'll be a man that loves denim jeans and a good apple pie. So that might be a symbol of that. Okay. But then my second thought was, who can smoke a cigar and drink milk? That it's is disgusting. disgusting. And he's so detached. We get yeah, he doesn't care. the hint of what the quote we gave last time. If she's catatonic, she's catatonic. If she dies, whatever, she served her purpose from the books. Um, they're bringing that home here, and I like that. The thing between Larry and Nadine wasn't quite great, but I do enjoy her getting this realization. It's coming to fruition as she's in labor here. She starts screaming something is wrong. It doesn't feel right. And she turns to Flag for the truth. I think this is a critical moment. She's going to put him on trial and see how he responds. She says he knew this was going to happen. And she was never meant to survive bringing this thing into the world. He tries to deny it. But of course, she knows it's true. And as she's losing control, that's when he touches her stone. Mm. And it glows. Now, I thought you were right because he seems to regain control in that moment. She calms down. Momentarily, yeah. But it doesn't work. That's a show. She's making him think she's calmed down. Okay. Because he then moves away from her, giving her the moment to rip it off and smash the glass with it. Trying to create this storyline in my head because the show doesn't do it for us. We have what we discussed earlier. Flag, keeping people occupied, keeping them entertained, but also fearing him. On top of that, and again, we don't know if everyone there has this stone, maybe just his head... His head people. Okay. Yeah. The stone acts as a charmer or as a charm <laughs> that actually keeps them just like you saw visually with Nadine, submissive and seeing what he wants you to see. Mm, the glamour. So if you look in the mirror, exactly. So maybe that's... They should have done that with everyone who wears a stone. Yeah. It would make so much sense. They're seeing something that's not really there. He's able to fool him again, going back to that Lotus concept you brought up. I really like that. Even if that is what he had been doing to her and we saw that, it's as though Larry injects that truth that he can't get that over her now. He thinks he can, but she's seen it. It's too late. She knows the only way to win here is to take herself out. I'm not positive that the show really did that progression correctly. Effectively, yeah. Effectively, yeah. Perfect word. That Larry scene with her didn't seem... It was a little surface. So flat and rushed and look at yourself, look at yourself. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm a demon. I'm half dead. It had all the makings. It, It just needed to unfold a little more slowly and you needed the early... Nadine Larry stuff. That's probably why it it fell flat because, again, character building. We don't know much about any of these characters. So that scene, but let's say, okay, Larry actually got to her uh, just enough, just like how Glenn did, to break that facade a little bit so that the realization as she's in pain and discovering he's he's in control, I'm not the queen. I am just a vessel for his kid. How can I regain control? The only way to do it is to throw myself and his baby out the window. Take my last little bit of power back because we see as she does this and really disturbing, but also well filmed. I heard people saying the CGI and this was bad, but I liked it. Her fall. Oh, I thought it was great. From the hotel and down into the center where everyone could see her flag reacting for the first time. (laughs) With a massive show of emotion, not just anger and rage like he did with Bobby Terry, but you can see this shakes him. 
Yeah, it's a big loss. Up until this point, he's been winning every battle and growing. It's funny, this is the second Natali episode. This is the second time we saw a view of someone flying in the air, because that's how Harold died. Remember? Mm-hmm. Flying off the motorcycle. And I don't think that's a mistake. No. But the connection between the two of them. I want to bring up a point here because it's our last Nadine scene. Another podcast was talking about this and I mentioned it a while ago. I think it's 100% correct. The real problem here is with this adaptation, they wanted to include the character of Rita Blakemore when Larry leaves New York City. It was a great idea. I always uh. wanted to see that character from the books, but it was executed very poorly. They didn't make it look like the real struggle for Larry that it should have been. Mm. The fact that he couldn't deal with her, she wasn't prepared for the end of the world, and he wasn't ready to have to care for someone. So ultimately his rejection of that in part perhaps led to her suicide. And he spends a long time trying to get over that. That's why when he meets Nadine, it's a whole different kind of relationship It's really important what happens between them, but you don't have a thousand pages like the book to do it. So the 94 took Rita out. And while people were upset, I think it was a good decision. You give Larry more time with Nadine. You come to understand that a little bit more, this this weight of the relationship we're looking for. And I think this adaptation, if you're only going to be nine episodes, (laughs) certainly should have done the same thing. As much as I love Heather Graham, cut Rita out. Have him meet Nadine sooner and get some of this stuff if you know you're coming to this point yeah. where you have a confrontation we never have in the books. You have Larry seeing Nadine like this. Mm-hmm. That's really important. A lot of things fell flat. Yes, but I, I do like... Pun intended. I haven't really enjoyed Nadine's character, not just because of the lack of writing, but I'm sorry, this, this actress's depiction, Amber Heard, it, she wasn't doing it for me up until this episode. Mm. I do like this. I want to talk a little bit more later about how this goes in the books because it's really different. Uh, But we'll wait for our closer look on that. Hey, Clatchers. Promo swap time. This week, we want to tell you about this amazing podcast we discovered called TV My Husband Hates. Yep, that's right. It's hosted by two badass, sassy women, Kat Sims, who's based in London, and Reagan Kempton, who's based in Colorado. They're probably as obsessed with reality TV as we are, and these two women go deep. They discuss a ton of reality TV shows, The Housewives, Below Deck, Kardashians, and more. But this is really a podcast that proves smart people watch reality TV too. Every episode is jam-packed with the latest tea, but they also discuss those bigger issues that reality TV brings up that we can all relate to. So expect smart and clever chat about relationships, sex, parenting, mental health, the patriarchy, and everything else in between all inspired by the latest episodes of your favorite reality TV shows. Kat and Reagan have been best friends for years, and listening to their podcast makes you feel like you're right there with them. So head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and hit that subscribe button. There's an episode every Monday, and it might just be your new reality TV podcast highlight of the week. Check out our friends, TV My Husband Hates Podcast. Let's move into another interesting scene where Lloyd shows his fear to the rat woman as they both cower outside of Flag's suite. Apparently he's been in there a long time with Nadine's body. So they start talking. She insists it was supposed to be a show trial. And Lloyd is regretful to have killed Glenn. He says he keeps seeing his face. When Flag emerges, Lloyd half apologizes for his actions, half justifies them. I like this. Yeah. Back and forth. 
But Flagg doesn't even care. He dismisses this, saying there's one more task he needs Lloyd to do before the execution. And thus they deliver a platter with Nadine's destroyed head to Larry. This is kind of gross, but I like what Larry says there. He thinks they don't even realize the true significance. The fact that Nadine was his queen and the whole place is falling apart. Yeah, that's a little bit of Glenn that Larry absorbed. It's the ability to see beyond the facade. Again, Mm -hmm. they're seeing what's really happening. You're losing control. You lost your queen. You lost your child. To back it up a little bit, I enjoyed the scene with Lloyd and Ratwoman talking Mm. on the ground. First of all, I love the fact that they're sitting on the ground in the hallway. I think that adds to it. Like kids almost, afraid outside of dad's door. Yep, waiting to go into the principal's office. And the way they're talking, you're starting to... It's another look at how everything's being run. They're really at the whim of Flag, and they're scared of everything that they do. Yeah, and I like that bit of petulance Lloyd shows when he's half apologizing. I think this calls back to a scene from the books where Lloyd has gotten the information from Julie, because Julie is a less important character there, and she's given him the tip off about Tom. Lloyd doesn't think much of it because Julie's kind of an airhead, but he writes it down because he always writes down anything he might need to take to Flag. And he's going for his regular report to tell Flag what's going on. This is how all the operations are going. And he tries to tell him, look, I heard about this guy, blah, blah, blah. And Flag cuts him off. I want a report about Indian Springs. When I want your opinion on anything else, I'll ask you, tell me about fucking Indian Springs. So reluctantly, he goes on to tell him about that. They talk about it for a little while. And finally, he comes back around to this point. Look, we think we might know who the third spy was. It's this guy named Tom Cullen, and he had interaction with Nick Andros. And when Flag hears this, he flips out. And you talk to me for a half an hour about Indian Springs? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Starts, like, throwing things around the room. Lloyd thinks he's going to kill him. But he finds his courage and says, you know what? This is your fault. You didn't tell me you were keeping this list, a red list, he called it, of people. And it turns out it was everyone that was on the committee in Boulder, and Nick Andros was on it. If I had known his name and known Tom Cullen was associated with him, I would have known Tom was an issue before, and I could have told you. It's your fault for keeping secrets from me and not paying attention to what's going on. And then he brings up Trash Can Man, and he, he sort of presses him. You know, this is a leadership problem. I'm doing the best I can here. And I think... In Lloyd's childish kind of way in this adaptation, it's the same sort of scene. Mm. I've been loyal to you. I've cared about you. You should have let me know what was going on and how to handle this, right? I like that. And I do like, like we said later, how Lloyd is the one to really second guess. But they built in a great premise here that this version of Lloyd, I think they should have called it out. The fact that Flag went to several other people first, looking for his right-hand man. He asked Harold. He asked Nick. He really wanted Nick. He mm-hmm. went after Larry. When he couldn't get anyone else, he went to Lloyd. Lloyd should find that out. Oh, yeah. That should be a turning point for Lloyd to say, I've given everything, and I wasn't even your first choice? Mm. Screw this. Because his turnaround based on moral things feels weird for this version of Lloyd and something, again, that we we didn't exactly get before here. I'm going to go off script here because you reminded me when you talked about Tom. Is Flag still looking for Tom? Does he have people out there? Because they don't talk about Tom after he leaves. They sort of did in the books. 
And he kept saying, he couldn't have gotten far. Don't worry, we'll get him. And it doesn't matter anyway, because we have this big plan. And what can he tell them that they don't already know? I mean, like, okay. sort of who cares All type right. of thing. But they do have people out there. Um, Tom keeps slipping by them because he's only traveling at night the way he's been told to do. But it's just so funny. Flag was so upset and so inundated with the fact that he can't figure out who this person is. I think that there's been so many other bigger things okay. that that has sort of gone to the bottom of the priority list. It's a good point, though. Well, here comes the big scenes. Ray and Larry are brought out to the Inferno's main area as the crowd shouts for justice. Julie announces the show and turns it over to Lloyd, who heartily introduces the man that shook the world. It's almost as though something overtakes him in that moment, and he starts really hyping up Flag. But then as soon as he's done talking, he's back to, what am, I, what am I doing? I don't like any of this. And he kind of runs off and leaves it to Julie. So Flag begins his speech, saying, Mother Abigail convinced the zoners the flu was the apocalypse. But they know better here, right? <laughs> it started long before Captain Trips. There's never been enough to go around. But now we are the predators and they are the prey. Okay, again. <laughs> What is the message here? Like, are we the strong and forget them because they don't realize that there's haves and have-nots and we're going to be the haves this time around, which is a very different message than the other things we've been talking about, but okay. And then they put on music. We're playing Feels Like in Heaven, U96, and Flag starts dancing. Oh, and this is when we realize, oh, Skarsgård doesn't know how to dance. Oh, he does everything brilliantly, but it's very clear the man does not have natural rhythm. But it's kind of funny because that's sort of how, you know, the Jamie Sheridan version was supposed to be a little goofy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mind it. It was funny. But this whole speech, the dance, there wasn't much to it, right? I mean, the speech isn't that good. Well, okay. And so are we bad people we don't really care because it's our turn and there's only so much to go around and we've got to take that power and flag can give you that power or are we essentially not such bad people different from boulder that just want order and structure and flag is a man who can give that to us and we fear to go against the green um if we're predators why do we get a bad feeling of violence when glenn is shot and start to question flags so confused why the debauchery from the beginning then it's it's very bizarre there is no central theme to it and every time flag does a big speech it just brings it home for me that i don't know what his message is and like i said his reactions by turns he is detached not really emotional then angry then fun loving then scared Jamie Sheridan took a stance. Some people weren't thrilled about it. I really liked it. It was consistent, and it made sense to me. Mm. Like, he had an idea of who Flag was. I don't really get that same feeling here. But as we said, this is kind of when they switch to, it's all a production to get the crowd hyped, right? The Rat Woman's controlling the cameras, and they put on a picture that cuts to the airport, where Flag announces a plane is being readied to carry the biggest fire ever seen to the witch and her minions. This is a a main difference. In the books, to make this short, Trash Can Man had an episode at Indian Springs. That's the airfield where they were preparing all these jet planes and pilots who could overfly Boulder, getting their weaponry ready. It was Flag's most important mission, and Lloyd was in charge of running it, and he was competent. That's a big part of what they talked about there, and Lloyd was a little taken aback of the Trash Can Man Not because Flag loved him so much, but because he was erratic. 
He was unsure about trusting a man like that. And in fact, for a while, Trash seemed to kind of be assimilating with them, as weird as he was. But then he had a PTSD episode. Mm. They were getting very close to being ready at Indian Springs. And while he's there, he has a flashback one day. He's triggered, loses touch with reality, and thinks the people around him are the people back from his hometown who used to make fun of him. Because somebody says a similar line, hide your mashes, Trashy's back. And he's like, wait a second, what? And he starts reliving all of it and gets so upset that he sets these detonators to all the planes they've been assembling, (laughs) blows them up, kills a pilot in the process, really trashes the (laughs) operation. And Lloyd is very upset about this. That's another thing he wants to talk to Flag about. He finally gets around to it and Flag says, oh, this is really unfortunate, but we're going to have to have him killed. I really thought he could serve a purpose longer, but I always knew he was kind of a wild card. He did what we needed him to do. Next time he comes back, have him killed, but quickly and painlessly. Lloyd says, okay. But Trash realizes he's messed up, and he wants to get redemption. So he goes off into the desert on his own, finds this nuclear warhead to bring it back to Flag to atone for his sins. Uh. And thus, he comes riding in unbeknownst to anyone, including Flag, while they're in the middle of getting ready to stage this public execution. And the crowd's going, what, what's that? Who's that man? And this really throws Flag because he had no idea that that was happening. And he comes riding in with a nuclear missile strapped to his, his bike. The fact that it's all sort of been arranged here is interesting, although it still does not go to plan because... Flag wanted him to take it to the airstrip where they were going to put it on a plane. What's also interesting is at this point that Larry realizes Flag doesn't know Mother Abigail is dead. Yeah. Is that going to matter now that it's all said and done? It, it seemed like a very cool point, but they didn't go anywhere with it. I think it gave Larry the confidence to realize he doesn't know everything. They have the upper hand. And I have nothing to fear for him. Okay. Hmm. Well, Lloyd enters the pool and asks the prisoners if they have any last words, at which point Larry starts to shout, I will fear no evil. Good scene. It calls back to, it felt a little weird for me, his goodbye with Stu and Stu repeating those words, but now it has a little bit more thematic weight to it. And considering what Glenn was saying during the trial, Mm -hmm. you fear him. Yeah, and despite Lloyd's multiple blows as he's hitting him, trying to get him to shut up, he repeats it until someone in the crowd begins to join in. Flag tries to identify the traitor, commanding Lloyd to shoot her, but Lloyd refuses. Then, the man on the balcony joins in. The man who... They keep going back to him, like, who is this guy? This, this episode, they keep cutting to him. I think it was like four times. It was weird. I like having the person who is grappling, starting to put it together... Now, there was a character doing that in the books, Whitney Horgan, who is a former police officer. Oh, wow. And he's in charge of running the execution. And as it gets going, he starts saying, this isn't right. What are we, what are we doing here, people? And he kind of puts it to the crowd. So I guess this guy was their version, but he's just some random dude. We don't <laughs> know him. It's a little weird. Anyway, he joins in. Lloyd tries to free the prisoners as Flag starts yelling about traitors in their midst. And then Trash rides into the hotel with his bomb, bumpty bump, dying of horrible radiation Ugh, poisoning, yeah. calling my life for you, I did it. Whoo, this visual <laughs> is rough. And I mean, it was, it was pretty good with Frewer in the 94 that he looked gross, but they really did it here. Oh, yeah. And it's that point that the 
hand of God, in this version, descends. Very different from the last version. Hand of God was a major complaint. In the books, it never bothered me because you don't see it. You can use your mind to picture what that might look like. I like the whole concept. I like the idea of the way it goes down. I like that partly in the books, it's Flag's fault. Because when this guy Whitney starts speaking up in the crowd, Flag knows he's got to shut him down. He can't have dissenters because that's the beginning of madness, the way it is here. So he launches electricity from his fingertips to kill Whitney. And the electricity starts kind of flying around. It's a little bit dangerous. Then Trash rides up with the bomb. It's a little bit his fault, but not directly him who sets it off. There still is a hand of God that picks it up and makes all of these things kind of come together to cause the explosion. I thought that was really good. But admittedly, they did not have the CGI capability in the 94. It's very weird. It's a wonky hand. Yeah coming out of the, it's not it's really their moving. fault it's like because <laughs> they didn't have the money what are they going to do but maybe they shouldn't have shown it at all in the 94 i really like the visual here smoke begins filtering down from the ceiling it's more like a scary horror movie now and i've been waiting since the plague outbreak for this to be a scary horror tale and it never really was again after the beginning but they've kind of made it that way here I mean, the lightning starts erupting around the room, breaking glass, striking and killing people in the crowd as they rush towards the door, lighting people on fire. Julie is electrified. A falling sign beheads Lloyd. (laughs) And the light starts to condense into a ball. That's when Flag finally stands to face it, because he's been scared up until this point. Kind of running like everyone else, sweating, really freaking out a bit. But he stands up and he starts singing that song that he originally sang when walking up to Lloyd. She brought me coffee, she brought me tea, she brought me everything but the workhouse key. Things fall apart. The center does not hold. Now, he takes several bolts of lightning. What do you think about that sort of it? We don't really get to see, at least at this point, what happens to Flag. Well, there's a few things about this scene. I agree with you. This was done way better than the 94 version. I like how there's buildup. First, you get a bird's eye view. The sky starts to darken. The clouds start coming in. Then the clouds start going into the inferno. And the electricity starts to build and build as people start to get more scared and freak out. And I'll get to your question. But then we have Trash Can Man, who goes from saying, my life for you, to flag, to looking up at the sky Mm -hmm. and saying, my life for you. you. I'm probably giving him too much credit, Trash Can Man, because this depiction of Trash Can Man doesn't seem to have any wits about him. Mm. Again, Ezra just over the top. Harkening back to when Trash Can Man first comes into Vegas, he says, I'm sorry, but you're going to die? To Lloyd. To Lloyd. Does that mean that Trash Can Man always knew he was going to do this? Was this part of his plan? And when he says, my life for you, was he really talking about God? Mm. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit there. Well, I like they kept it kind of purposely ambiguous because there was a little bit of ambiguity to it in the 94. Not that he was working for the side of good, more just like he was a chaotic agent that was neither here nor there, Mm -hmm. wasn't really controlled by either side. He had chosen to worship Flag and work for him. But had he not, his actions were so large that they really could go either way. And it is what allowed God to unleash holy fire as they put it on the mall on everyone and I I think they brought it a little closer to home here because 
So in the books, when he comes back with the bomb and he's riding into town, Lloyd starts freaking out, going, Trash, what what you got there, Trashy? What's going on? (laughs) And Trash just keeps asking for Flag. He's like, listen, man, come here. Let's talk about this. And Trash keeps saying, where is he? I don't see him. I can't feel him. Mm. He's not here. Where's Flag? He's there. He's right there. But I think because his power has been so drained, it's almost as though Trash can't even recognize him anymore. Oh, wow. The biggest power in the room is now God. And Trash knows it. So he never says anything about serving God, but they almost insinuate that a little bit here. My life for you? No, Flag, you're nothing. My life for you. Okay. Here you go. (laughs) I think it's really good. As much as I don't love Ezra's depiction or the way the character is so crazy here, I like the final culmination of the storyline. Yeah, this is the time to be crazy. It should have built up to this crazy. When you're sick with radiation poisoning. Absolutely. Still don't understand why he decided not to go to the airport. I wish I had a reason for that. Yeah, uh, they don't really do a good job of explaining it. But also, when you were describing the, the way the lightning is coming down into the room, the way we're seeing it, immediately I was visually reminded of Silent Hill. So the very end of this movie... Don't say the characters so it doesn't... Uh... Right. So when the one character is unleashing chaos and mm-hmm. destruction and evil on many other people, namely one person, but many other people die. Visually, it felt very similar because that character, there's sort of a a center and the person's in the center. And then it's barbed wire that starts coming out from her. And it's shooting off in these offshoots that look a little bit like the offshoots of lightning here. And it's grabbing people up and killing them violently the way the lightning is killing people violently. But it's, it's really all culminated in directing at this one person that she's looking to get over on the way it's culminated in looking for flag here. Right, yeah, the, the build-up is very similar. The destruction is similar. The, the cadence of it, mm-hmm. a, a, a large room, a large area, as it grows, it starts to affect other more stage, and more people. down in the bottom. Yep. Th- there's echoes of it. It's definitely, it's not a copy. No, no. It's a very light echo, but I enjoy the visual symmetry that I got from it. Absolutely. Because I always liked that scene. But in that scene, the payoff was way more impactful. In this one, now finally going back to your initial question, mm. the way Flag dies was unceremonious. It, Does he die? Uh, to I don't the point think that's where clear. I don't even know if he died. He gets electrified a few times and then just dissipates. Mm. Now, we know that he can change into things. So what does he change into a, a rat? Because we know he can be a rat mm-hmm. and scurry away. There's one more episode left. Maybe... Or does he die? If so, it just felt flat. If so, it should have been bigger. I There's feel no like more suffering. There's no suffering. It's like a quick boom. It's an insinuation he didn't because if he did, surely it would have been more. I don't know. It's, it's a little bit weird, but I have to wait to see now where they're going to go with this last episode to know what I think about that. Um, but also before that point, we see Larry and Ray holding hands in the pool. We haven't talked about that as the water starts to rise. Yes. Uh, because Lloyd's unable to get them free. So they sort of come to an acceptance that this is going to happen. They slip under the water, and finally, a huge bolt of electricity hits that warhead, exploding the bomb and sending out huge shockwaves. But they're alive because they're in the water, you know, so they're, like, protected, right? No. (laughs) Everyone was taken down here, unfortunately. Giant mushroom cloud. You can see the impact. Vegas is done. Mm. 
and all those who followed Flag are done. Perhaps if Flag turned into a mouse, now he's dead? I mean, you would think any animal that he was, a crow even, can you They're all dead. fly high and fast enough to get no. away from a nuclear explosion? But he has magic. Does magic allow him to completely transport? We've never seen that, but... Or if we're going on the fact that he's lost his power because no one believed anymore or was scared of him anymore. Mm. Maybe he doesn't have magic right now. Maybe that just takes him back, you know, the way that it, from King's book, it recedes for 27 years and then comes back in power and and grows again. It's just like fading out into the distance. He has talked about being reborn several times. It's weird. We don't really know what to make of that. But that is where we leave Vegas for now. So let's talk. We just have a couple of brief scenes from the other side of things, mainly Stu's struggles. We see him trying to deal with this horrible injury and a mounting infection as he gets increasingly feverish and lays, it appears to be dying, by the fire because he pulls out Glenn's bottle of pills, shakes several into his hand and stares at them, clearly contemplating. But Kojak comes up and whines at him until he puts the pills back, saying, not yet. That night, a wolf comes and starts fighting with Kojak. They battle it out in the darkness where Stu can't see what's happening. But thankfully, Kojak emerges, wounded but victorious. Thank goodness. I know you were very concerned (laughs) there for a minute. Of course, that is not the exact way it unfolds in the books. I I did mention we get Kojak fighting wolves a little earlier when he made his trip to try to get to Boulder Mm -hmm. and survive some pretty horrible wounds. There was some real cool stuff here with Kojak because Stu lay worsening and worsening there for days. He would have died if he didn't have food and water or heat because he's in the middle of the desert that's freezing at night. But Kojak goes and kills a rabbit and brings it back for him. And Stu's sort of like, wow, good dog. Wish I had something to cook this with, though. He's got matches, but nothing to light a fire with. And he says, you don't by any chance know how to fetch, do you? And Kojak runs off and brings back a stick. And he's like, holy shit, fetch Kojak. Kojak keeps bringing him more sticks till he can build a fire. He's like, wow, this is incredible. He cooks the rabbit, gives half to him, eats half. He's got water. He's got the pills for the pain. But the infection is getting increasingly worse. So it's really Kojak who's keeping him alive all this time, but he doesn't have much of a chance if something else doesn't happen. Then the explosion goes off up top of the ravine. And Stu... He doesn't feel the shockwave like he does here. It's not as though debris comes down. But he could see the light in the sky and feel the heat even from that distance. Mm. So he needs to know what's going on. He needs to know if this is what he thinks it is. And if these are his final moments, at least he wants resolution on that. So he starts pulling himself by the arms, trying to get back up out of that ravine, dragging his leg behind him. He makes it close to the top, but knows he couldn't possibly get over it. And Kojak comes up and he sort of desperately flings his arms around Kojak and Kojak pulls him the rest of the way over the lip of the ravine. And he's able to see the lights in the distance and that's when Tom walks by and he hears something and he says, Kojak, is that Kojak? (laughs) Well, this time they made Kojak be the one to go get Tom, which is cool. They gave you some elements. Kojak saves him from the wolf. Mm -hmm. But I would have liked if they added... The fact that Kojak gets some sticks, gets him a bunny. Uh, Quite a few things to eat. In my head, Kojak still does that. He's a hero. Yes. He's a good dog. He's an amazing dog. And helps him out of the ravine. (laughs) Very cool. I mean, I know it's cheesy, but I love when we have animals in that position. Yeah. Um, 
what we do get, though, is this very weird last scene. Because even though it's not a lot, I still like the stuff with Stu. I wish we got more. Uh, but I don't think there's anything bad here. No. I like the way they've adapted it. The last scene, though, we see what's going on back in Boulder. A very pregnant Franny walks down the streets with Joe. And she looks up as the lights start to appear. I thought they looked kind of like northern lights. And I wondered to myself, I wonder if that's actually what it would look like. What would it look like if a nuclear explosion went off? Apparently, this happened in the summer of 1962 during the Cold War when the U.S. exploded. We, we talked a few episodes back about Russia and the U.S. detonating all these nuclear explosions. They exploded a 1.4 megaton hydrogen bomb 250 miles over the Pacific Ocean and created the largest human-driven light show in history. For nearly an hour, witnesses from locations ranging as far as New Zealand and Hawaii saw the night sky change from color to color as the aftermath of the effects of the nuclear warhead blazed through the sky. So apparently it said that's kind of what it looked like. Franny and Joe look up and Joe says, he's gone, the dark man. Franny realizes that Joe can see, he can see what's going on. She starts to try to question him about Stu, but it's then that she goes into labor. And we cut to the end credits with Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave. All right, so Joe's talking. He no longer feels flag. He knows he's gone. And she says, what do you see? What do you see? So uh, I'm 99% positive that he has the shine, right? I'm 1,000%. I already was. But this is just indication that other people are seeing that now. Like Mm -hmm. Franny gets it, and Franny had bits of it in the book herself, warning them to get out of the house before it exploded. So I like that she recognizes it in Joe. It's just kind of an odd end scene to shove in here. The way the the stew scenes just felt a little abrupt and choppy. I'm not sure why we show that, but I am intrigued to find out what's been going on back in Boulder, what's going to happen with Franny's pregnancy, and what's going to happen now with Stu and Tom. How much of that are we going to get to see? What if this whole time we find out that that's another one of Flag's babies? Because we don't know who, we don't know about the person that impregnated her and Stu is very worried about that in the books he's getting dreams that something comes and tells him the dark man's time is coming again and he's going to be reborn through boom franny and that's why he keeps telling tom we got to get back to boulder wow now i swear to you i didn't know that i know you didn't read the books it's It's just a good it's not in the 94 and the fact that we were just talking about like unceremonious the way flag leaves or dies or whatever and there's still one more episode left kind of interesting right I like that you... So the baby comes out in jeans? But, so, well, <laughs> smiley face, pin on him. So that leaves us not really knowing where we're going to go next, but it wraps up our penultimate episode eight. Let's give it a dream rating on a scale of one to ten dreams, Jason. What do you think about the stand? Chris, I'm really torn because, like I said up top, I think Natalie did a great job with what he had yet again. There are a lot of memorable visual things happening Oh, I don't know, man. I feel like a broken record at this point. I'm going to go... You know what? I'm going to grade it low because it wrapped it up too quick. Mm. It felt like the payoff was just rushed. So I'm going to get... You know what? I'm going to give it an eight. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like last time. I love what Natalie's doing with what he has here. Visually, it's great. Things that are happening make a lot more sense now but everything just highlights how many problems there were before. And we know this is kind of, this is the big one. It feels a little bit like Game of Thrones, where the major battle, the major action, falling action is in the episode nine. Mm. 
and it's the last episode that wraps up the story for us. I think we might be going a similar way here. So I enjoyed it, but if this is really the big thing, there's definitely problems. Well, uh, let me tell you this. And first of all, looking back, I've given eights and above this whole time. I think I graded... Hey, you were at an eight for episode one, which we liked. I think I've been grading very generous. Some of those should be sevens. Um, like everything should be knocked down a little bit, but that's fine. Whatever. It's already happened. To put into words how I'm feeling, we've had seven, albeit very rushed episodes where evil is gaining power. The fact that in one episode, it all falls apart at once, I think that's what makes it feel like we're, we've been cheated. Oh, yeah, that feeling. Yeah. I, yeah, but I don't, I don't hate it either. So I think I'm also going to go with an eight. I've been going higher than that the past few times, a little over a nine. But it, it doesn't frustrate me as much as the intro to Vegas one. <clears throat> that I gave a 6.5 that I really hated. I'm somewhere in the middle, so I'm going to give it an 8, and I'm going to see what they do with the finale. And now we move on to our Clatcher segment, where we talk about our MVS. But before we do, a little reminder, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, we have a Patreon, where you can get more content from us. It's a new month. we got three new podcasts coming at you. The bonus we're getting ready to record this weekend. We're giving uh, top 10 a few top 10 lists. Random rankings. I'm really excited. And we've got a Stephen King ranking on there. And voted best segment in all podcast history. We're bringing back. And now, your CKC's Terrible Table Reads. Terrible Table Reads. Oh, <laughs> this should be making fun. me do it, guys. <laughs> if you want to join in on all the fun... And support Christina and myself, go to patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast. Thank you for your support. Over at Twitter land at CKC podcast, we asked you guys for episode eight, who is your most valuable stand? This week we gave you Nadine, Glenn, Kojak, and the trash can man. What an interesting mix here. Well, coming in last with 5% was the trash can man. He did bring in the final uh, weapon. That does destroy everything. But I think the fact that we don't understand or know what his intention was. Yeah, it was interesting. And this was definitely his episode, My Life for You, right? And I love that maybe things shifted for him, the idea of that, just the vaguest hint. But there, there hasn't been enough with trash to really get any of that or to understand. So I could see him being last on this list. And in third place, oh, keep in mind, there's 14 hours left. So this may change. Third place is Nadine with 15%. Look, we don't like her. <laughs> of course, she is an evildoer. And one could look at this scene as still a, one of her selfish acts. You could look at it that way and say she killed herself to, to save herself from flag. Or you could look at it as the other way. She finally saw the light. She finally saw the correct reflection of what's going on. I think that's more what I'm getting out that's of it. That's what I'm getting too. And I, I do like this final episode and couple of scenes for her. It's just I, I didn't really love everything before that. And I, I think, I'm sorry to say it, that somebody else maybe could have done more with this. I know Nadine is always a problematic character, so maybe not. Um, either way, she's just not going to be my top choice. But the top two are interesting. In second place with 30% is Kojak. Good dog. 
he's amazing. I, I really want to vote for him myself. What we see here is beautiful. Unfortunately, I just know there was so much more that we didn't get of Kojak. It kind of um, takes it away a little for me. And in first place with 50% is Glenn. He planted the seed of doubt from the beginning. Well, let me take a step back. From the beginning, he planted the seed of hope to the other two, Larry and Ray, from that opening scene. And then the seed of doubt. Kind of showed them the way a little, right? Yeah. I enjoyed those scenes. I loved the way Greg Kinnear acted these scenes. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the, how smart he is and how unabashed he was. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah, he did a very good job. But let's see what our clutchers had to say about it. Kirk says, I was tempted to vote for Glenn, but found it impossible not to vote for Kojak because he prevented Stu from committing suicide, killed the wolf slash devil slash spy, I'm going to add slash flag, brought Tom to rescue Stu, and is a dog. How can you not vote for a dog? I mean, come on, people. Brian's saying if there's ever a chance to vote for a dog, you vote for the dog, regardless of who the other options are. Linda says, I voted for Glenn because he's the reason Larry would later say he fears no evil. Oh, very true. Absolutely. That's what I mean. Glenn put the power into our other good characters and took the power away from Flag with using just his words. Mm-hmm. Eman says, I love courtroom scenes in television shows, and this one was excellent. Glenn's speech was masterful, calling out the fear, causing disunity and skepticism amongst the baddies. Great stuff. Yeah, Robert Lee Garter saying that Glenn scene really bummed me out. Otherwise, I loved how they did the rest of the episode. To not have Flag talk to him is the most unforgivable thing the show has done. So where Flag confronts him himself, like I was saying earlier yeah. in the books, because he sees him as such a threat that he needs to literally go deal with him personally. Oh, that's a good point. Flag actually never speaks to any of them. Yeah, and I think after Dana, which he talked to both in the books and here, It is just Glenn, because he knows he's going to be a problem. And that does give him a little more weight that I appreciate. That might be another reason why I'm not too happy with the way Flag goes. He never confronts our heroes, so you never get that You don't get that showdown. Yeah. And you do get that there. And Lloyd kind of hanging in the balance, because Flag's trying to get him to shoot Glenn, and Lloyd won't. Yeah. And it's it's like, is his right-hand man going to go against him? It's a nice sequence. Yeah. We don't get that. I wonder why the writers decided not to have him speak with any of them. Is it because of the power that he would lose trying to confront them in reality? And on top of the Nadine thing, which happened differently in the books, maybe just too much. Okay, yeah. But he does say, I really liked how they handled Nadine in this episode. Yeah, this was probably one of her better scenes. So Jason, who is your MVS? You know, I'm going Kojak. I knew you would. (laughs) I, I mean... This depiction of Kojak, it's the best dog in the world. He saved you. It's like a lassie moment. He saved you from the wolf. Mm-hmm. He saved you from killing yourself. Yeah, but that in was my head, amazing. Yeah, in my head, he's also feeding you. He's also bringing the sticks. Doing all the things we don't see. Like, that's how he got the fire. Yeah, and he's also going, and he also left to go get Tom. Yeah, you're right. I like thinking about it that way as well. So much of me wants to give it to Kojak. Like I said, I I feel a little bit robbed because we didn't completely get everything from the books. And while I do agree with Robert, I wish we had seen the Flag versus Glenn thing. I do think he was the most impactful. And like the others are saying here, it sets the, the mark for the other two to hold on to their courage and their faith to stand up later. 
and say, I will fear no evil without Glenn doing that, who knows what would have happened. It was as though every person needed their piece of the puzzle, Stu leaving them with those words, Glenn leaving them here like this. Maybe it doesn't work out the same way without all that. So I have to give it to Glenn. And maybe Stu needed to go on the trip just to save Kojak because Kojak would have been with them during that bomb explosion. Ah, so now Kojak lives too. I like it. Well, we could go on and on. There's so much to say about this, but that's going to wrap up the main portion of our discussion for episode eight. We will, of course, be back for the finale, episode nine, The Coda. And we have a bonus episode coming and then Christina's special book review podcasts that I think, even if you don't want to read the book, I think this is kind of like the cheat sheet to find out what else happened in this storyline. It's a little like what we've been doing here in these episodes, but we're going to go full force. And it won't just be my voice. There'll be a panel of other people on to talk about it. So I think there'll be a lot of really cool stuff happening over there. So there's more fun to be had if you're enjoying what we're doing. Don't forget to give us a rate and review on iTunes or your podcast platform. And tell your friends about us. Tell them, even if you're not watching The Stand, they've covered many other shows. And we'll be doing some exciting new stuff after The Stand coverage. And we do still have our spoiler section left. But if you are afraid of that, we will see you next time when we review Episode 9, The Finale. For those of you still here, we are in the spoiler section because I am in the way of knowing things. We already talked about Glenn's last stand from the books, but we didn't speak about how it went with Nadine. Now, the confrontation between Larry and Nadine never happened there, because in the books, Nadine is pregnant, but very early on, hardly showing. It's not this sort of crazy, magical, demonic thing where she's pregnant one day and giving birth the next day. And we talked about how she's basically catatonic. She's not moving or really speaking, but in the last couple of scenes, she does talk to Flag. They're alone in the suite. And she starts goading him. She knows her only way out is to get him to kill her. So she really starts pushing him, telling him that Mother Abigail's people are on their way to Vegas. She says, they're coming for you, you know. Flag crashed back down at the sound of that soft, uninflected voice. So this is where he's levitating and he comes back to the ground. The jarring shock went up his legs and his spine all the way to his jaw, which clicked. He whirled around like a cat, but his blooming grim withered when he saw Nadine. Flag was afraid. She took a delicate step closer and said, they're coming. Stu Redman, Glenn Bateman, Ralph Brentner, and Larry Underwood. They're almost in Utah now. They'll be here soon, and they'll stamp you out like a disease. Everything you made here is falling apart, and why not? The effective half-life of evil is always relatively short. People are whispering about you. They say you let Tom Cullen get away. They're saying your weapons expert has gone crazy and you didn't know it was going to happen. They're afraid that what he brings back from the desert next time may be for them instead of the people out east. And they're leaving, leaving their posts in the dead of night and your eye doesn't see them. So she keeps going. He's getting more and more upset until she says that. And finally he says, you lie, he screamed at her. His hands slammed down on her shoulders, snapping both collarbones like pencils. He lifted her body high over his head into the faded desert blue sky, and as he pivoted on his heels, he threw her up and out. He saw the great smile of relief and triumph on her face, the sudden sanity in her eyes, and he understood. She had baited him into doing it, understanding somehow that only he could set her free. And she was carrying his child. He leaned low over the parapet, almost overbalancing, trying to call back the irrevocable. 
Her nightgown fluttered, his hand closed on the gauzy material, and he felt it rip, leaving him only a scrap of cloth, so diaphanous he could see his fingers through it. Then she was gone. Uh, I don't know which version I, I like better. I think I like her taking control and, and leaving herself better. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's very interesting because it gives Nadine more agency. She is taking the choice into her own hands, but she really was there too. Both times she knows she needs to get rid of his child. That's how she can really get to him. And the only way to do that is for her to die. It's just that in the other version, she goads him into killing her Mm -hmm. instead of jumping herself. But essentially, it's still her own choice either way. And what I liked about that is it gives you more of that flag unraveling thing. The reaction we didn't see him have with Dana when she kills herself. And he's yelling and kicking her around the room. He does bellow here. He does get angry after she dies. But it's really partially his fault there. He should have known she was goading him, but he's losing all control over everything and almost making it happen. So I don't know. There's pieces of both that I think are interesting. The last thing I want to say, and I think it's a pretty obvious reference, but we didn't talk about it in the scene where the hand of God is coming down in this adaptation. Mm -hmm. And we see the whole center of the Hotel Inferno. There's those couple of circles that hang down from the middle. I think they're lights, but they're circular shapes, and that's what eventually comes undone and beheads Lloyd. Yeah. Um, But you have that hanging down. Then you have these circles, you know, up up high where the suites are, where Nadine jumps. Uh, Then you have the level where Julie and Lloyd are talking to the people, and then lower where the people are, and then all the way into the pool, which is kind of the pit where the prisoners are handcuffed, mm-hmm. Larry and Ray. It seemed to me a pretty, pretty obvious visual allusion to Dante's Inferno. And of course, the hotel is called the Inferno, so mm-hmm. I think they were directly calling that out. But you have the visual of what that's supposed to look like with Dante, which is a bunch of these spiraling circles kind of going down and down further than nine circles of hell, oh, okay. if you will. Dig it. And you also you feel a lot of those quote-unquote sins happening here this time around in Vegas. So in Dante, it starts out with limbo, then goes to lust, which, of course, we saw plenty of the first time we saw Vegas. Gluttony and greed, wrath, exemplified several times. Heresy, so speaking out against faith Mm -hmm. or religion. Uh, Violence, which is a huge part of this episode. It gets a lot more violence between Nadine almost giving birth, jumping out the window, her head being delivered, fraud. And finally, the last level is treachery, where there are traitors, (laughs) quote unquote, people who have betrayed others, their community, and their lords. And that is what finally gets flag completely unhinged. Traitors in our midst. There's nothing worse, right? So I think that they were making some allusions to Oh, that. that's a good catch. This shouldn't have been in the spoiler section. I think that's very well said. I, You know, we had so much other stuff to talk about yeah. that I kind of just popped it in there. But um, yeah, I think between the Silent Hill call-outs mm-hmm. and, and these allusions, I'm not sure who's responsible for all that, but I like it. Gluttony. That's something I'm suffering from every dinner time lately. Uh-oh, you're just in the third circle. <laughs> Well, as we mentioned, our next episode will be our last, episode nine. And since we are in the spoilers, I'm going to give the title since we haven't said it yet. 
It's up everywhere. Everyone's talking about it, but we haven't. It's called Coda Franny in the Well. Still tells me really nothing because we didn't have anything about Franny in a well (laughs) or really much of that at all in the book. We did have final scenes of Boulder and what's going to go on there and potentially what's going to happen with the community. But I think since this is written by Stephen King himself and is meant to be a whole new coda, I don't know if we're going to see any of that or if it's just going to be a completely different jump to a new ending. I'm not sure quite what to expect. But it will also be directed by Josh Boone. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's a good way to end things out. Out with a bang. Really excited to talk about that. And until next week, you come see me anytime. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CKC Podcast. And if you'd like to support Jason and Christina and would love even more content, including bonus casts and movie reviews, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash CKC podcast. This round is on me. 